Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we're sat in his office and just getting interrogated by these Guinean special forces. They're like airborne, they have parachute wings and things like that. And they're just screaming French as door kicks open and it's the president's PA. She just slaps the genuine as if to say, how dare you? These guys are guests of the president. Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. Dean Stott was a UK special forces soldier until an unfortunate parachuting disaster cut his career short. He's going to tell us exactly what went wrong and then how he went on to single-handedly evacuate the Canadian Embassy from Libya before setting a world record for cycling the Pan-American Highway. But before we start, a massive thanks to our two sponsors this week who helped make this podcast happen. If you want to support the show and the work we do, take a look at Packed Coffee and Sons and use the discount codes on offer. Packed goes straight to the source in search of the world's best beans, pay coffee farmers prices they deserve. Their subscription plans are tailored to you. You can select exactly how you want your coffee and when it's delivered. You can pause, cancel or change your plan anytime online. It's also delivered through your letterbox, which is super convenient. We'll help you get started with five quid off your first bag. Go to packcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com, create your flexible coffee plan, enter the code ANDYROW at the checkout and get specialty coffee through your letterbox and the code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan, so it's for new customers. You may have heard me speak about Sons and their hair care products, well now the lads at Sons are tackling another area of men's health, how to help your gut. One in four people suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating. And gut health is vital to your general health and wellness, with 70% of your immune system located in your gut. If you have gut issues or are just looking to optimize your gut health, Suns have the product for you. Suns Live Bacteria Supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive problems and improve your gut health. It was effective in helping 8 out of 10 people with their gut issues in one particular study. Check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order and you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is much appreciated. Hope you enjoy the episode. Dean Stott, thank you very much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, no worries. Well, let's find out a little bit about you because obviously we're going to get to the into the uh, military stuff and the, and the world record stuff later on, but your whole journey... It's a it's a different sort of a start, isn't it? You you were homeless at one stage. My uh, my parents split up when I was about eight years old. My my father was in the military and my mum was from Manchester. One morning, my mum put me and my sisters on the train and headed north to Manchester, where she was originally from, unaware of what was actually going on that my parents were separating. So um, to get onto the housing or any sort of housing, you, you had to be on a waiting list. So there was nowhere for us to live. So we were in a a homeless hostel in the place called Moss Side in Manchester, which was at the time in the eighties was the roughest, <laughs> roughest estate in the UK. Right. Um, so I am, um, yeah, myself and my sisters were the only Caucasians 
in the school and in, in the area. So obviously brought a bit of attention to us. And um, yeah, found myself at an early age uh, defending myself in the school playground, as many kids do. Really, really. So I bet you grew up pretty, you hardened up pretty quickly in that respect. Yeah, it toughened me up quite quick. And um, within six months, we moved from that school to uh, another school in Fallowfield and found myself defending myself and my sisters at a very young age. And then um, my father actually then got custody couple of years later of me and my sisters. And yeah, didn't a judge make you choose between your mum and your dad or something? Yeah, well, what the judge, at the time, the judge didn't want the siblings separated. So he didn't want, you know, for example, my sister to stay with my mum and then me to go with my dad. So the decision mm-hmm. was actually laid on, on our shoulders as, as youngsters. Me being the eldest at 10 years old, you know, I had, the, I had to make that decision. For me, I was very close to my father, you know, my father would travel every other weekend up to Manchester, drive 240 miles, pick us up, take us down, and, and we'd have great weekends, you know, make the most of those times. So I was very f- close with my father. And yeah, I had to make that decision for the, the three of us, not just for myself. And yeah, it, it was a difficult one. Um, but my father got custody of us. And yeah, sometimes one of my sisters would sort of throw that in my face at a later age that did we make the right decision? You know, she was close to my mother and I got it. But when you're 10 years old, with that sort of responsibility, you don't know future consequences. I'm just trying to think of the biggest decision I had to make when I was 10. And I just can't, I can't remember making any decisions. Uh, That's probably all those. Your meal, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do I, do I eat a biscuit or do I eat a muesli bar? It's probably about as much as it got. To get into the Marines, like you, once you got in, I mean, it's, that's hard enough. But then once, once you got in, you kind of had to box your way in, didn't you? You had, to, you had to fight your way to earn a little bit of respect. Yeah, well, I didn't join the Marines. I joined the Army. Um, so my, my father was in the Royal Engineers. And so when I went to the careers office, my father was thinking probably short term. And it was like, get a trade, you know, get as much as you can from the military. I wasn't aware that you could go commando forces, airborne forces. Right. So that's what I did. I joined the Royal Engineers. And then from there, I did the All Arms Commando course at Limston, which is a a, a course um, for right. Army candidates and Navy candidates to serve alongside the Royal Marines. So the Royal Marines is nine months long. And obviously, these candidates are already done their basic training and everything else. And they now want to be part of the commando unit. So yeah, I did the all arms commando course. I went from the army. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the bit where you had to kind of fight your way to get respect once you got in there, talk yeah. me through that. Cause it's <laughs> savage. Yeah. Well, prior to going on my all arms commando course, you, you do a beat up. It's like a four week selection process with, with your, with the five, nine commandos. And I, had a bit of a fight back in Germany. I'd, I was posted in Germany at the time playing football um, for the army over there. And I got into a bit of trouble and I ended, ended up spending time in Her Majesty's uh, prison, Colchester prison. Oh shit. Uh, Talk me we, through the fight. Talk me what, what, how did you, how, what happened? You know, what it was, was um, they, they, the Royal Engineers run a course called Pi, uh, Assault Pioneer course where infantry come and learn a bit about engineering. And we had some fusiliers on our camp who had already been gated banned from going downtown because they were causing too much trouble one of the squadrons had just come back from northern ireland and they had a big you know welcome back party reunion in in the uh, the camp bar 
and obviously the fusiliers were there and they were being quite rude to some of the wives and things like that. So yeah, me and my mate just decided to drop three of them on the dance floor. Um, <laughs> Uh, and just went to bed thinking it normally things like normally get swept under the carpet but uh, a troop sergeant wasn't happy at all that three of his guys had probably gone to hospital um oh, so so yeah i got really woken by the military police um questions went off did my commando course sort of got told two weeks before the end that yeah you're probably gonna have to go back to germany and uh have a court martial. Um, court martial process would have probably taken about 18 months, but for me, I just admitted guilt, get it through, and then, you know, just move on with my life. Thankfully, it was, I was quite early in my career. I'd only been in the army about 18 months. It wasn't in the latter stages. Yeah. So, but I learned a lot from that process. You know, A, you don't get caught, but B, you know, um, Colchester Prison, for me, I, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, I learned more about the military I hadn't seen before. You know, we were doing aircraft recognition, we were doing drill, we we're doing all, all the other stuff, you know. But <clears throat> for me, you know, it, it can't be seen to be benefiting from that. It has to be as a punishment. Um, but then when I left there, I then joined my unit after the commando course mm. and the, the admin officer just ripped up the report, threw it in the bin. He said, like, that's, that's, that's your start point now. We'll start all over, which is perfect. So um, I could put, you know, it wasn't a cloud over my head or in my career. It just, just moved on. But the the unit I just joined, they were the Army Mining Unit Boxing Champions. And um, every year, because they won, they'd automatically go to the final. And so um, the squadron were in Northern Ireland at the time and when I just passed. And um, when they came back, you know, you can imagine... Few of, the, few of the big characters, especially in the boxing team, were like, oh, well, you think you're handy. <laughs> so prove it. So I ended up being there, found myself on the boxing team, which for me, you know, it was a, it was a step in the door. You know, we, we had my, I had my fight at the Army Finals, my Finals, and you know, I knocked my op um, opponent down three times within a minute and a half, and that was the end of the fight. So for me, I'd sort of made my mark within the squadron. And no right. one really knew who I was, and... And for me, yeah, that was it. That was it. That's the hot point there. Yeah, that's going to earn you a little bit of respect with the lads, isn't it? One of your first tours was uh, to the Balkans, wasn't it? On one particular mission that I'd like you to talk me through, uh, you were, you guys were followed at night, weren't you? Stalked. Yeah, yeah. Going to Kosovo, we our first our first operation on the ground. We were to go to the border and was to get imagery of, of a target or potential people at a target who caused atrocities that could end up in in the Hague going to court and that, you know without giving away too much detail but on the on the drop off on the way in you know we, you, you get dropped off you do all round defense you do your little listening watch uh, and things are but from the off we could hear like what sounded like someone tiptoeing in 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 the grass or the leaves <laughs> so we're straight away we're on alert and you know we're scanning scanning the area can't see anything this is obviously at night time anyway and we, we we couldn't see anything and we we then proceeded to to where we needed to go to but every time we we had a stop we could we could hear this and so for the two weeks that we were on target constantly hearing this noise you know and we were just shattered we were just shattered just you didn't know if you had anyone following you we just didn't know what it was Anyway, completed that operation as a success, uh, went back in and we have like a debrief, um, you know, what worked, what didn't work. 
you know, if we're going to do again, what would we do differently? Lessons learned and such. And, um, you know, on the debrief, we sort of highlighted the fact that we didn't know, we don't think we've been compromised, but it felt like there was someone following us. There was this rustling. We sort of told it. And one of the intelli- uh, the in- core, intelligence core guys was sat at the corner and he's like, oh, I, I did fail to uh, to mention in our brief before we went on the ground that it's it's the mating season for the tur- uh, the tortoises. So um, <laughs> and, and that's what it was. So we're we're scanning our sites and actually what what was moving was was below below the surface. So um, yeah, amazing how you know some tortoises in mating season kept the whole patrol awake for two weeks. Then you decided to go and uh, join the special forces. What's your thinking behind that? So obviously, when I when I joined the military, I didn't, you know, I, I you know I did it initially to keep my dad quiet. Um, I didn't see myself then becoming commandos, then recce troops, you know. And so for me, my career was sort of funneling in one direction. Those before me in recce troop had all gone special forces and, and been very successful. I I also became an instructor on the commando course myself four years after doing my course. I went down to Limston and was training um, potential recruits for the commander course there. And our final test is the 30 miler, the 30 miler, and then you get, get your green beret. So the special boat service were coming down and doing recruitment um, presentations to the Royal Marines and also to those that had just passed the All Arms Commander course. So I was fully aware of the special air service because everyone in recce troop from the army had, had gone that route. Um, but it really gave me an eye opening to what the SBS was about. And the SBS were losing candidates from the Royal Marines to the SES because they didn't like diving. Um, and it was 100% Royal Marines that could go SBS. So they then decided to open their doors, try service as well. So the Army, the Navy and RAF can have an opportunity to, to choose either. Mm. The SES. Um, for me, I'd spent... Eight years in free commander brigade, seven M in brigade recce force anyway. So I was very much used to being around the Royal Marines. Mm. And also I was a diving supervisor and the senior diving instructor for the army at the defense diving school. So being in the water, I was very comfortable and obviously growing up surfing, you know, I'm probably more comfortable in the water than I, I am on land. So for me, the SBS was almost a natural fit for me of what I'd done and, and where I'd been before. So that's what I did, much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS. I decided I'm not going SAS, I'm going SBS. And that's what I did. And yeah. you can imagine the attraction or the attention that got whilst being on course, because the course is joint. It's the same course. It doesn't, you know, it's not SAS have their course, SBS have theirs. It's together. So um, they, they tell you to be a grey man on these courses, you know, try and stay gray, don't bring any attention to yourself. You know, that lasted about two minutes on a six month course. As soon as I turned up, you know, a couple of instructors were shouting out my name who were from the SAS and previously from my unit, asking me why I was going SBS and not SAS. The instructors on course, the DS, they try and, um, they don't shout at you as such, but they give you lots of opportunity to quit, don't you? And sometimes they even trick you into quitting. Yeah, that's what it is. Unlike other other courses, you know, the course is hard enough as it is. It's called selection um, for a reason. Um, so they don't need to scream and shout and be in your face like you probably see on the TV or, or other courses that you've, you've had in the military. 
Um, because the course is hard enough as it is. They just tell you what you need to do, where you need to be, and then, you know, if you expect you to do it, you don't, you don't get there. The, um, it's a lot about um, being able to retain information as well. So they'll tell you once, they may tell you twice, but if they tell you a third time, then, you know, you're obviously not, not suited for the, for the role. But, um, but yeah, they, they do that. But when you then go to the jungle, so the first phase is the hills phase, which is more the physical element, you know, running around the mountains. And they don't even know your name then. You're just a number. And then after four weeks, that's when selection starts. And they do. You, you, you see that they start playing mind games, especially when in the jungle and things like that. They tell you you're not good enough to be on the course. You know, save yourself another four months of heartache and blood, sweat and tears when you can just leave now. And, and, and that's what it is. It's just trying to see how you react to negativity, you know, how you react as a person, you know, are you, are you a feisty person? Will you react in an aggressive manner or will you just take on board that information and, and ignore it? You know, so everyone's, everyone's uh, an individual. Um, but when you're in the jungle as well, and it's like 100% humidity and you're, you're hanging out and then they're doing it. <laughs> when you're fatigued yeah. then it's a different reaction than when you're like fully fed watered you know yeah you, ju you just brush it off so they pick their moments and pick their opportunity and sometimes it sticks some guys are like ah, yeah i don't think i'm doing well you know these got these other soldiers are great soldiers i, I don't I, I don't belong here but one of the things the instructors said to us and i, I always remember is let us fail you don't fail yourself so until they say you're off you're still on that Right. There was an incident where um, you'd finished a massive day or something like that and they said, right, now you've got to go to this point. And then some people were like, oh, fuck this, I'm out. And then yeah. it was a fake, wasn't there? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so a lot of it, it was actually some of the drivers in the parachute regiment used to volunteer to be drivers on the courses. So they would they would know the routes, you know, the, the, the drop-off points, the, the finish points. And then when they were on their course, they were very fully aware of of the routes that they would be going on but the instructors sort of knew that as well and they needed to sort of test them so you basically start the day you get a a grid reference and then you've got to get to that one you've got to move within four kilometers an hour but it doesn't sound fast but that's looking down on a map as four kilometers so if there's a mountain in a way you've got to get over that mountain so they say move between five and six kilometers an hour so you give yourself that fudge for any navigational errors um you know stop for some food etc so it's quite easy to do so basically walk up hills and anything straight or down you, you jog the routes would vary between 25 and 35 kilometers each day and you're carrying up to 70 pounds your weapon you know your food and water as well i hadn't had an opportunity to go look at the routes before so i was just literally going next checkpoint next checkpoint until someone told me it was over so i actually i got to the end not knowing it was the end. And the instructor said to me, he's, he's like, right, this is your next checkpoint. So I started running off. And then 200 meters up, I can hear someone shouting behind me. He's waving me back. He said, right, no, that, that's you done. You're in the wagon. But then we we were just around the corner. He didn't want us to be exposed. And then um, the next group came along, a couple of lads, and he did the same thing to them. But they were drivers from the parachute regiment that had been on before. So they come in knowing that is the end and all, automatically we're in that relaxed mode and then when the instructor sent them off it was just too much and they hadn't psychologically they prepared themselves for that they hadn't prepared themselves for another potential four kilometers and then, and that's what it was it was a test for them 
there, I know you can't talk about the the missions that you did once you're in the special forces. That's standard. But there there was an incident that ended your um, special forces career. I was wondering if you could talk me through what happened. Yeah, so I just about gone another tour to uh, Afghanistan on pre-deployment training out in Oman. I was doing what's called a hey ho jump, a high altitude, high opening jump. So. Unlike Halo, which is skydiving, and you're not attached to the aircraft. This one, you are, it's a static line still attached to the aircraft. So as you exit the aircraft, once the parachute gets taut, it pulls open. So we've done about, you know, we've done many of these jumps before. Um, my sergeant major said, just go do a fun jump. I was like, no such thing as a fun jump. But, you know, it was my third, third jump of the day. A normal routine, exit the aircraft. But this time there was something wrong. I looked up. I wasn't looking straight ahead. My leg, my, I was looking up in the sky and my leg was caught in the line of my head. So I'm trying to kick my leg out in time before the parachute went taut and open. And, and I couldn't. And um, parachute opened, pulled my leg over my head even further and to the right. And thankfully my ankle released and my leg wasn't taken completely off with the force. Um, straight away I knew through the pain. The pain was that hard that bad I was, I was vomiting i knew there was a problem at this point are you dangling in the air i, I have a canopy above my head right, so i okay. still have a canopy i still have a canopy above my head you know i've had a couple of jumps before where you, you've had no canopy and you've had to cut away but at least i had a canopy above my head so that was my first concern i've, I've now got that but at fifteen thousand feet you travel up to 30 minutes or 50 kilometers to the target area so i still had to be in the air for another 30 minutes you don't just come straight to the ground 15,000 feet on the limits of oxygen as well. So I was also drifting in and out of consciousness and the rest of the team are off towards the target. So vomiting and that, and, and there's no point in getting on the radio telling everyone you've got a sore leg. You know, that, not, I just have to get, have to follow them, stay with them and, and, and get to the target area. And, and that's what I did. But I, I monitored the other parachutists, their approach when they landed, you know, against the winds and found my best approach. Because if I, if I missed time to land in, I, could potentially damage the good leg, but it was a it was a great landing. It was one legged, <laughs> one legged well landing. Yeah, but unfortunately, the damage sustained on the exit and uh, as you touched on, ended my career. I tore my my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within the knee, my hamstring, my calf, and my quad. So all the supporting muscles as well. Shit. Then once you had finished in the special forces, you went on to the circuit. Can you just explain to people what, what that is, uh, people that are listening that aren't familiar with that? So the circuit is, is almost a natural regression for ex-military guys. Uh, the circuit, I, I see the circuit as more your hostile countries, your Afghanistan and Iraq. It's guys that are now working in the private security sector, you know, protecting either oil companies, NGOs, uh, or, or individual clients. But for me, I didn't want to go back to Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I'd, I'd done all that. I wanted to uh, focus more on corporate protection. But within leaving the military, you know, without sounding like Liam Neeson, that is your natural progression. I didn't have a build-up to leaving. I literally had the injury, you know, and then I, I, I had an operation and then I was out the door. Um, I ended up in Libya within 48 hours of leaving, which was great because for me to add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant. You know, I had the, the worry in my head, you know, how am I going to support my family? Um, you know, is there enough work out there, et cetera. And um, yeah, in Libya and it was during the Arab Spring and I helped set up the DFID project, which is part of the British embassy in Benghazi. And Gaddafi was now was now in Tripoli, but being 
sort of contained. And the Libyans didn't want it being another Afghan or Iraq. You know, once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control uh, of the country. But what I soon identified, I was trying to find a niche within the industry. A lot of my friends that are ex-SBS were now had their own companies and were working off the east coast of Africa, uh, combating piracy. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to sort of be competing with them. But these uh, larger security companies were charging six, seven figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, which when you scrape the surface, there was nothing in place. So I, um, I came back, my wife gave birth to our daughter and I said, do you mind if I take our savings out of the bank and flew back in. And at the time there was a huge proliferation of weapons, huge proliferation of weapons. It wasn't hard to get hold of. The hardest thing to get hold of was the ammunition. And so I bought 30 weapons off the black market and I, um, I spent a month and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and just made my own evacuation plans, buried it with communications kit money. But just spent a month writing the plans. We lived in Aberdeen, which is the oil and gas capital of Europe. So I had exposure to the oil companies. And that's what I did. Just sold the EVAP plans on retainers, you know, should they need them. Hopefully never needing to need them. And they very much focused on more the corporate close protection. Very fortunate to like the Olympics, the World Cup, taking the UAE Royal Family Super Yacht from Barcelona to Maldives. Uh, spent a lot of time in and around Africa. But it was great for me because I was learning more about the security industry that I hadn't seen when I was in the military. When you're in the military, you're almost cocooned. Hmm. You know what I mean? You, you have a role, you have a purpose. You don't really get to see what's going on or the politics, the demographics and, and, and stuff like that as well. So, so that's, what I, that's what I did. I mean, in 2012, just finished the London Olympics and the American ambassador got murdered, um, killed in Benghazi. They made a film called 13 Hours and I just finished... I was, there, I was there that night, you know, right place, right time, wrong place, wrong time, I don't, I don't know. And I um, evacuated a German oil company called KCA Deutag from some of their engineers from Benghazi back to Tripoli uh, through safe houses that I had in the desert. No hope, you know, that was successful, not, no issues at, at all. And then two years later, I just finished the, uh, sorry, I didn't I'm finished, I was still in Brazil covering the, the World Cup. And I got a call from the Canadians saying that they were now stranded within Tripoli. It was now the Tripoli war, which is a civil war between the militias and the government. And could I assist them? My name keeps coming up. So I, I flew back in um, and, you know, they had their own close protection team and things like that, but they hadn't left the perimeter of where they were staying. They had no idea of, of the road out of the country or, or what the situation was on the ground. So I went out, spoke to tribal elders along the way. You know, it was all about communication, just showing them respect, letting them know who we were and when we were coming in. Because the British Embassy got shot at the week before at every checkpoint. On the same way that you were going to go. On the same way. It is. Yeah, it's just, it's, just the, um, it's just the coastal road from Tripoli to Tunis. It's only about 100 kilometers. But if you don't know it, then you don't know what's there and, and, and things like that. And there's checkpoints along the way. So I, it was just respect. Went out, spoke to the tribal elders, Showed, uh, just told them who we were, were no threat. And, and that's what it was, is understanding the demographics and, and the, the tribal influences. And then safely got the Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats out of the country back to Tunis. Let's just back it up a little bit because you talk about that like it was just a little thing that you did. That's quite a big deal. Um, and you brush yeah. over it quite quickly. Like you just brushed over the German thing as well. Let's focus on the Canadian guys that you were evacuating. So you, you t one, one part of the process is you speak to the elders along the way so that you can get through the checkpoints. Yeah. So 
how do you put a plan like that together? So you've got a you've got an embassy full of people, mm. and you've got to get them out. Yeah. So for them is the problem they they had is is they'd never. There's a place called Palm City, which is where the majority of the embassies and oil and gas all, all tend to tend to stay. So the problem with the, the Canadians is their close protection team rotate every four months, you know, they, and they just fly out at the international airport and then a new team would come in. But you've got Palm City and you've got their offices in Tripoli. They'd never really left the city walls. So during that whole period, no one had actually gone out to have a look at any of these in these potential routes. So when the Tripoli war happened, they burnt down the, in, the international airport. So their first port of exit was, was burnt down. The other embassies had sort of left the week before. And the reason for that is the Canadians aren't going back. The rest of them are going back. The Canadians were shutting down everything, which is why they were, were a week later. And so when I came in, it was for me, it was like, well, you just got to go on the coastal road. And they're like, well, we've never done the coastal road, you know? So for me, I had a great fixer who's from those regions. He's the one who organised everything. And, it, and it's like, you, you kind of have the same fixer in Tripoli as the same one I'd had in Benghazi moving KCA Doito because he's not from that region. And you have to understand those tribal influences and understand who's best suited for, for what roles. You know, for me, my fixer was great. You know, his cousin was the president of the GNC, which was the government. So he had a lot of collateral. Handy. And, 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 you know, for me, it was like, well, you've got your embassy vehicles, you're fine. You know, I've spoken to the tribal elders along there. They're expecting you. They know you're coming through. You know, don't just speed through there like the others did. You know, show respect and things like that. And then obviously they had to worry. The, the, one of the biggest worries as well was all their equipment. They couldn't get all their equipment into the vehicles as well. So, so for me, there's no point in getting a box fan following them because that's just going to attract attention. So there's fish wagons that travel every day from Tripoli to drop off fish to Tunis. So the borders know who they are, you know, and they go a different route. You know, they just get waved in. So that's what we did. We grabbed two of the fish wagons and put all their sensitive equipment on there. And that went separately, you know, so you're just not bringing attention to yourself. You're just thinking another way. It's very much um, covert. So for me, I, I, that's why I don't really get too excited about it. For me, it was just all about communication, having a plan and, mm. and being confident with it. Didn't you get captured at one point in Guinea? Yeah, well, that was uh, literally my wife, as in my wife had given birth to our daughter. And then before I went to Libya and started digging in, in weapons, I got a call, can I go do a quick task in Guinea? And it was to, um, we had some Arab ministers who were going to meet the prime minister and the president um, the next day and go to meetings. We arrived late in the evening, about you know midnight, got to the hotel. There was only one room between three of us. The private jet was flying in at eight in the morning. So for me, I wasn't really comfortable. I said, well, let's go recce the places that we need to go. So did that in the evening, came back in about five o'clock, quick shower, and then back to the airport. But because the, um, the Arab ministers were meeting the prime minister and president, next thing this whole entourage turned up, military, police, the lot. And they said, oh, no, because they're our guests, we'll take them everywhere. So they did our job for us, which was, which was fine. They flew out that evening. The next day, everywhere I go, I like to do a report on, you know, of the task, you know, what worked, what didn't work, contact details of potential fixes, just so in case anyone after me was going, I can go in in blind and say, well, look, this is what we learned and this will help you on yours. So I, you know, I did that everywhere I went, 
and you know, I have my own boxes just full of people all over the world that I can, I can call upon. And so that's what I did. The next day, I, I thought, well, I'm going to go do my recce. I'm going to get Latin um, GPS positions of the places, uh, images as well, and things like that. And the, the president's PA, she offered us one of their vehicles. Good old, just use one of our vehicles. But it had all the flags on it. And it obviously, for me, it was like drawing attention. I said, oh, no, no, we're all right. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll go low profile. But one of the buildings I was at, I had my GPS out and, you know, I was, I was then taking notes. But unaware of me, there was a, a military base across the road and the, the guards came over. Obviously, you don't look like a local. They came over and were quite aggressive, speaking French. And so I pulled my GPS out of my hand. You know, we had, it was me and one of my mates and then our local fixer, he just ran, which is good because he, he had to go get help. You know, he just disappeared. So we sat in this office and just getting interrogated by these Guinean special forces. They were like airborne, they had parachute wings and things like that. And they're just screaming Frenchers. And I didn't really get get too too concerned, but I knew they were military guys. And we, I started to ease the situation, talked about the parachute wings and how we used to jump and things like that. And it, it, it wasn't that heated, but about four hours later, the, the door kicks open and it's the president's PA. She just slaps the general as if to say, how dare you? These guys are guests of the president. Uh, but I, I, I can Power play. Yeah, so I can understand how they're from the military side where, where they were concerned because they were just doing their job. You know, who are we? Are we potential spies? Um, so, yeah, lesson. Do I, next time, would I have taken the presidential vehicle? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So then there's the transition. You, you Obviously, you, you can't be on the circuit for your rest of your life. It's, you know, it's, it's a risky business, to put it mildly. Yeah. So there's a transition into civilian life and you're looking at challenges because obviously you're, you're someone that's had challenges and been in sort of tough situations your, your whole life and, and you look at cycling the Pan American Highway, which is mm. what, 22,000 kilometers yeah. and then you're trying to do it in under 110 days, is that right? Uh, it was, the world record was 118 days. I'd set a target of 110 days. Yeah, you're right. So I, just, I came back from that Canadian embassy job. My wife had highlighted I'd only been home 21 days in a whole year. So wow. something need, needed to change, yeah. So, um, you know, chapter 16 of my book is called Dead or Divorce. That's the stage we're at at this, this point. So my wife was a property developer and said, don't need to be taking these risks, come work with me. So that's what I did. My injured leg now was 
two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. And so I just bought a push bike off Amazon, you know, never really cycled since a young boy on a BMX and uh, cycled to and from the office, but it wasn't big mileage, eight miles there, eight miles back, but being physically active again, you know, I sort of lost that identity with my injury. You know, I got to where I had in the military because of my physical robustness. And I couldn't even run a hundred meters. So to actually be physically active again, doing some CV, it felt good. Mm. But you can imagine with my backstory, you know, sat in these architects and planners meetings, I wasn't really interested. So, mm. um, you know, my wife's like, you need to do something. And I always, about a month before my 40th birthday, I said, well, I fancy doing a world record. And that was it. We just put, cycling, put cycling because it wasn't hurting my knee. And my wife and found, yes, as you touched on the Pan American Highway, the world's longest road. So 14,000 miles or 22,000 kilometers. So it's equivalent because of the curvature of the earth, it's equivalent to cycling from London to Sydney and then another 4,000 miles. You know, it's that. <laughs> so I thought, oh, perfect. Having never cycled more than 20 miles, applied for the world record. And Guinness came back six weeks later, said, yes, you've been successful in the application. The world record at that time was 118 days. So yeah, I, I, I do a lot of charity work. You know, Prince Harry and I have done a lot of stuff. I met him in the military and we've done a lot of stuff before um, in more military charities. And I said, look, I'm going to do this. What charities should we do it for? And he was just about to launch a campaign with his brother and Kate called Heads Together, which was really focusing on mental health. And I'd, I'd seen firsthand issues of mental health in the military, but not aware how big it was throughout the whole of society. And so... So that's what I did. I, we, I set a target of raising a million pounds for the, for the Heads Together. And I just trained for a year. I wasn't a cyclist, but from my time in the military and my time in the private security, I knew it was all about planning and having a decent plan in place. And as I evolved as a cyclist, I sort of dropped that into, into the plan. And um, yeah, 118 days. I was aiming for 110 because when I was doing all the planning and looked at all the potential scenarios that you know could happen on this, there were things that are out of my control, like natural disasters, coups, third-party influence. So rather than have, coming across that and then that then slowing you or putting you mm. back, if I had that week's fudge to, if we encountered any of that, it would, it would eat into that and not to my record time. So that's where I set the 110, that's where the 110 days have come from. I, um, I set off on the 1st of February, uh, 2018. But I did the opposite from everyone else. When I talk about what worked, what didn't work, if you were going to do it again, what would you do differently? When I was doing the research to this, I, I spoke to the previous record holders and they'd started in Alaska, finished in Argentina, but all their issues are in South and Central America. So I was at, why don't we address them early, get them out of the way. And then, so that's, so that's what I did. One thing I'm proud of, I just turned it on its head. Yeah. Just because it went one way doesn't mean it was the right way. So we set off from Argentina and, um, you know, it, it didn't come without issues. There was, you know, food poisoning, I crashed my bike, you know, you've got horrendous, you can imagine with the weather as well, you've got some really strong winds down in Sierra del Fuego, you know, we got to the Atacama Desert in Chile, it was 47 degrees Celsius for a week with no shade, so we, um, yes. and, and that was what the attraction was on this challenge as well, it wasn't, you had the four seasons, you had everything from 47 degrees to minus 18 in, in, in Alaska, but I took, I took 10 days off the South America world record, um, I did it in 48 days and flew from Cartagena to Panama City and um, and I was making good good progress I know a lot of people mess with me like well you've, you've got one record you can, you can relax but my 
Target was Pan American Highway. For me, that was almost like a, a Brucey bonus in between, a, like mm. a short-term target. I got to North America on day 70, and I was 14 days ahead, and I was like, perfect. Take a day's rest here or there if we need it. And my wife rang me about five times, and she was a campaign director, very good in keeping all the distractions away from me. So my initial thought, there was a problem with my children. So I rang her, and she told me that we've been, been kind of invited to Harry and Meghan's uh, wedding. I was like, okay. So I, I need to get back in time for this. I do need to be finished by day 102, which is 15 days ahead of the world record. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. Everything I've just done and achieved meant nothing. It's like you now have a new goal to get. So I got to Lubbock in Texas the next day and I had 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes. So I was grounded for another 24 hours. And I just, there's an app on your phone called Windy TV. So it gives you the strength and directions of the winds. And I just just looked at that all day. You can you can scroll every hour for the next two weeks and it gives you a very accurate weather window. So for me, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss the next weather window. And I just played chess with Mother Nature through North America. I uh, had 17 days planned on paper originally back at the start. I mean, I, I did it in 11 and a half days. Wow. Um, yeah, I got to Canada. And I was a week outside and I thought, right, the wedding's secure, the, 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 the world record's secure, unless they get eaten by a grizzly or a wolf. And then some, uh, a guy called Michael Strasser, a professional cyclist, you know, I mean, about 26, 27 years old. He'd sponsored by all the big brands like Red Bull, all the, all the top brands. He'd come out on social media that day um, and said that he was going to do the Pan American Highway and be the first man in history to do it under 100 days. So for me, I was like, great. So the dynamics had changed again. Uh, I wasn't comfortable in just being smashing the world record. What I thought if I didn't give it my all, and I don't think I'd be able to sort of not live with myself. You'd, you'd always be questioning, you know, the what ifs. So I just pushed it as hard as I could and cycled for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to come in in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes. Ooh. So it wasn't the original Rich. plan. It's just how it evolved through the uh through the challenge so i talk about you know the importance of planning actually yes it's good to have a plan but the actual success of this was being reactive to the situation on the ground when the plan changed so you need to have flexibility in your plan you must have been shattered at the end of it obviously but then you've got to come back to the uk and go to the wedding the royal wedding and i'm assuming massive load of media as well that you would have had to have gone and done the rounds with yeah, so, you know, I'd lost 12 kilos on the challenge, that 19, finished at 78. I was just getting used to being around my family. And then we're flying back to UK like two days before and you had 11, 11 TV interviews one day, 11 the next. And, you know, for me, I'd wish I had a bit more time to appreciate what I'd done before we started talking about you know, going into the mm. wedding because it was almost like, you know, how's the wedding? And I was like, I've just smashed two wheel records and raised over 900,000 pounds in mental health, but they were just fixated on the wedding. All so, the media interviews are all about Harry and Megan, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, how was the, how was the wedding? I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment that was quite entertaining in your book. There was, there was a moment where you are doing your media rounds and a security guard puts you on a bench. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I was traveling. It was day before the wedding, so... I was bouncing between CNN, Fox News, Sky News, and they're all over Windsor. 
So I'd just come from CNN, which is down by the river, and I was heading up to Sky, which is outside Windsor Castle, where they, their tent was. But you, you get a media bracelet, so it means you're on one side and the public were all on the other, because it was a huge gathering. It was like the London Olympics. And I basically got told, oh, you just need to sit down. It's, someone's coming out. And it was Harry and William coming out to meet, meet the crowds, basically. So he was doing his bit. But then as they were coming back towards the castle, uh, Harry spotted me and comes running over. And uh, yeah, and he, he, obviously he was, like, he, was, he was touching his face, um, basically telling me how skinny I was. Um, of course, the media thought I had a inside information whether he was going to shave his beard or not. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was good exposure. Harry, Harry, a good lad though. Yeah, no, really good. You know, obviously, you know, he's born into that, that, that the society he's in, and I met him in the military. So I met him as a soldier and an officer, and, that, and that's all I ever ever saw him was, uh, and treated him as such. I didn't. I sort of looked beyond the royal titles, and and he, he gets that if you treat him like one of the guys then you know he, he gets your mutual respect but yeah after 14 years of a friendship still very much in communications now both living in california um yeah a lot of a lot of parallels yeah because it was you mentioned how you just sort of treat him like one of the lads there's there was a kind of a nervous introduction for you and him wasn't there didn't you try and uh give him a bit of stick and yeah, I just gave, yeah, I just made, I, I just started just doing some military banter in front of him, and, uh, gave him a bit of stick in front of the group, you know. So and he, he appreciated that, you know. He felt like he wasn't being treated uh, set, uh, differently, um, and so the sergeant major, however, was like gobsmacked that I said it. But he, he then partnered us off for the six weeks. He's like, well, you're obviously going to treat him how he should be treated. So um, yeah, that worked. Nice, nice. So what's next for you? I, I know in your in your book you talked about kayaking the length of the Nile what's the what's the latest yeah so so my USP is you know I take a sport or discipline I've never done before and I find the biggest challenge so I've cycled the world's longest road and the plan now is to kayak the world's longest river from source to sea but unlike the uh, Pan American Highway this has never been done before this is a world first from Rwanda to Egypt what are the major challenges in that so you have crocodiles, you have hippos, you have civil war in South Sudan, um, you know, and there's things that I, I, I don't even know that it's going to be potential hazards. You have the water itself. Well, one of the world's most powerful waterfalls, Murchison Falls. And you're um, going to go off that or you can go get off and walk around that and it still um, counts? I, I really like to go off of a raft. So I can choose which which craft I'm, I'm paddling. Right. So whether it's a creek boat, whether it's an ocean ski or, or a raft. So you, it's self-propelled by paddle so i can, I can choose one end but anything that's like unpassable then you you have the option to portage portage as in carry carry so actually the, the beginning the spring you can't even paddle so from the start i then got to walk five kilometers with my kayak before i can even get it into any sort of paddleable water just to qualify for a record and so yeah, when that, when's that happening uh february next year all right. Well, good luck for it. Good luck. Is there any charity that you're doing it for? Is there any way people can get behind so, you and support you? Or? Yeah, so check out the website, www.deanstock.com. There'll be more on there. Uh, my social media handles as well, uh, Dean Stock. Um, but unlike the Byride, which is mental health, you know, this one we're, we're going to talk about a, a lot of subjects or raise awareness, you know, poverty, pollution, conservation, sustainability, modern slavery, human trafficking. So there's, there's, there's a lot more involved in this and this will be potentially five to six episode documentary how long is it going to take you what's the ballpark yeah. figure months 
days. Yeah, well, I'm aiming for 120 days again. Same like the bike ride. Brilliant. Well, best of luck for that. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, Andy. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.